you don't know me, I am Justin Bailey. I teach theology here at, um, at Dort University, which is where you are. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to visit Rome, the eternal city. And I got to see all the sites, the Colosseum and the Sistine Chapel. That's my picture because you're not supposed to take pictures. In fact, there's somebody yelling at everybody taking pictures. And so that was my being rebellious and taking a picture of the Sistine Chapel. In the first few days, um, we walked all over and we posed for pictures at every landmark, every hunk of rock, what might have been significant. But after five days or so, a strange shift had occurred. Somebody offered me the opportunity to wake up to the sunrise over the Tiber River, listening to monkish chants. And I chose to sleep in and go to a cafe and read a book and drink coffee, <laughs> which I could have done here, right? I somehow, in the course of five days, grew numb to all of the wonders that surrounded me. It strikes me that as humans, we have this amazing capacity, don't we, to acclimate to that which is amazing. Consider the fact that you and I live on this near-perfect sphere that is spinning over a thousand miles per hour, hurtling through space 87 times faster than the speed of sound. And that this spinning sphere runs laps around a star that is one in a hurricane of 100,000 million stars that make up a galaxy called the Milky Way that itself is spinning like a top at 483,000 miles per hour. Isn't that amazing? Are you amazed? You are not. Because we acclimate to the amazing so easily. And sadly, this propensity continues to afflict us when it comes to the most amazing thing of all, grace. We have this incredible capacity to grow weary at the wonder, to become bored with the beauty, and to cease being amazed by grace. Now in chapel this semester, we've been talking about what it means to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses and to follow Jesus in every area of our lives. But as we follow Jesus, we get stuck, don't we? And we fall into seasons of what we might call spiritual dullness. A spiritual dullness is a condition of the soul where your faith fails to move forward. Where the things that once seemed so compelling to you no longer seem as compelling when scripture has lost its sweetness, when prayer feels empty. How do we move forward and follow Jesus when things are like that. Well, the good news for us is that the writer of Hebrews addressed a group of people that suffered from a similar condition of spiritual dullness. And we meet them in chapter 5. I'm going to read verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 3. Please follow along as I read. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. Since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. 
For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. The writer of Hebrews is in the midst of this marvelous exposition on the beauty of Jesus, and he stops to diagnose the dullness of his readers. And he says, listen, you've heard enough sermons. You've had enough experiences. By this time, you should be the one teaching the class. And yet you need somebody to keep telling you again and again the same basic things. And even when they do, you have grown dull of hearing them. Like a person who's been a Christian for 20 years and they don't have 20 years of experience, but one year repeated 20 times. And maybe we can see something of ourselves in their dullness. I know I can. Turn 40 tomorrow. <laughs> and I have been reflecting upon arriving at that number on the last two decades, especially of my spiritual life, the 20 years since I've been seated in a seat like yours, and the way that my faith has been challenged and has grown in that time. And what I've learned, or what I'm learning, is what I think is one of the main ideas of this passage. That spiritual dullness exposes, it shows us our immaturity. But that Jesus is always inviting us to grow up in grace. And so what I want to do today with the short time we have together is to give you a, a very simple framework for faith development. A very simple framework. And give me 15 17 minutes or so to set up the framework and then five minutes at the end to preach. This is one of the most important things that I think I've learned, especially in the past decade. And so here's the framework. Three T's. They all start with the same letter. Trusting, tasting, and training. Trusting, tasting, and training. And the third point is the most significant but first we need to visit the first two. So let's take the first point. Trusting. The good of childish faith. I'm using childish faith here as a metaphor for faith in its earliest stage, but for a lot of us that's not just a metaphor. We might think of our childhood faith, especially if we've grown up in church. We've had faith for as long as we can remember. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says here in verse 13. Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Notice that the author doesn't say that children are wrong in their childish preference for milk. Only that they are immature. Unskilled is the word he uses. Unsophisticated. So childish faith 
is good, but it's immature. Because when you're a child, you believe on the basis of testimony, don't you? From trusted authority figures, your parents, your pastors, your teachers. You don't believe because you've thought through all of the analytical arguments for faith. You believe because somebody that you trusted told you that it was so, and you had no reason to believe that they would lie to you. And in fact, faith makes sense. In fact, cognitive scientists like Justin Barrett have argued that faith and not unbelief is what comes most naturally. Studies have shown that children of all different cultures seem to be born believers and that unbelief is the thing that you must be taught. Belief is basic and childish faith is good. And it's real faith, or at least it can be. And this is important for some of us to hear, especially those of us who have grown up in church, because sometimes we have a tendency to discount childhood faith. If you grew up in a relatively healthy church, praise God for that. That's a vital part of God's hand in your story. My children are 10 and 12 right now, and for the most part, they don't struggle for faith, at least not yet. They simply believe. And I pray that they will never know a day that they don't know Jesus as Savior. But there's something beautiful about the faith of a child. In fact, when we look at Scripture, we see that children are celebrated. They're held up as examples of faith and humility and dependence of God. The disciples are arguing about who's the greatest, and Jesus takes a child and places the child in their midst and says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. So no matter how old you become, there are some childlike things that you must never leave behind. And you must always relearn. Humility, dependence, wonder, curiosity, unself-consciousness. You want to be great, Jesus says, become like a child. But not in every way. Because while the Bible celebrates certain characteristics of children, it also says that there are childish things that need to be left behind. And perhaps because they are so trusting, children are also easily tricked, easily manipulated. And the goal, the Bible says, is not to be easily tricked, not to be that way, not to be tossed around like driftwood in every wave, but to be rooted and to move with purpose and direction. In our passage, the author is clearly frustrated with his reader's inability to grow up. And so we see that childish faith can be genuine, but it's also immature. A spiritual infant is unskilled in the word of righteousness. And what that means is that childish faith has not yet reckoned with the complexities of experience. It's not yet learned to lean into the word in the midst of difficult seasons. Childhood faith is not sufficient for the challenges of adolescence in the same way that adolescent faith is not sufficient for the challenges of adulthood. It has to keep on growing in response to a God that you always find bigger and better than you thought. So the goal is not to uproot childhood or childish faith, but to nourish it, to allow it to grow into something new and vital, a faith that can weather the storms that are going to come. And that brings us to the next movement, tasting. Tasting. The gift of experiential faith. 
So childish faith at some point must also become a faith that is characterized by experience, which is represented in this passage by food metaphors. Solid food, drinking milk, eating, eating meat. In fact, just a few verses later in chapter 6, he will specifically use the language of tasting. He'll talk of those who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, what we've just sung about. But there is undoubtedly an experiential element to Christian faith because we are not brains on a stick and we are not disembodied souls. The metaphor of tasting is a very important one. So if in childhood you believe on the basis of testimony and authority, as you grow older you feel the need to experience things as true for yourself, to move from simple trusting to a trusting that also includes tasting, experiences, encounters with God. So childhood faith can be genuine, but as it develops, it should develop a development of spiritual taste buds, a taste for God. And whether you grew up in the church or came to Christ later, or maybe you're still even investigating what you believe, but no matter what your situation is, you must know that there is a profound difference between knowing something intellectually and actually tasting it, experiencing it. Like a person who knows from a dictionary what a strawberry is. Versus a person... Mmm. A person who has tasted this strawberry. Both people know. But only the one who has tasted really knows that the strawberry is good. And the same thing happens with faith, doesn't it? That some people watch as others are just moved to tears, moved to turn their life upside down in response to the love of Jesus. And other people think, what is the big deal? This carpenter and teacher who lived 2,000 years ago. And the answer is not just to explain, but to invite them to taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Because tasting is a metaphor that tells you that the offer to follow Jesus is nothing less than an invitation to encounter God's love with your whole person. To experience truth, not just in your mind, and not even just in your feelings, but deep in your bones. As you get older, trusting grows to include tasting, experiences of encounters with God. But the point of the author of Hebrews is that tasting by itself is not enough. It makes all the difference in the world what you develop a taste for. Solid food versus a liquid diet. Because here's what happens sometimes. When we begin to experience God in our feelings. In our immaturity, we can become attached to the wrong things. Good things, just not the most important things. We might become attached, for example, to the intense emotions that we feel. The feeling of being loved, the release of forgiveness. Uh, the feeling of losing yourself in intense singing. And our sense of God's presence is strong, but the reality is, is that our character is still weak. There hasn't been enough time for the Spirit to comprehensively transform you. And yet in the early days, God meets you right where you are. It's like you're a newborn baby and God gives you a bottle of emotional affirmation to fuel your growth. 
Experiential faith is a great gift from God. But listen, God is not ultimately interested in you becoming dependent on your emotional experience of him. Because as long as you are fixated on a particular experience of God, a particular feeling, you will squeeze every sermon, every prayer time, every church service, every Bible study in search of that thing. And I say this because I've worked with a lot of young adults for whom feeling God is like a security blanket. And they're always trying to get back to where they were before, to feel what they felt before on the missions trip or on the mountaintop. And that is a potential sign of immaturity. Rejecting solid food because it doesn't go down easy. Refusing something better because it doesn't come out of a bottle. And so just as trusting must be joined to tasting, so tasting must be joined to the sense that I am in training. And this is the final movement now. Training. The groans of maturing faith. Look at verse 14. Solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment, it's the ability to choose, to choose wisely, are trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Remember, the point of the passage is not that there's anything wrong with a child's love of simple foods that are easy to eat. It is that if the child never grows beyond these basic things, then the child's development is in an important sense arrested. And the danger is becoming stuck in immaturity in the constant need of being bottle-fed when there is something so much better than a bottle. And in the same way, God's desire is for us to grow up and to develop spiritual teeth. A spiritual taste for solid food and not just the kind that comes easily. A heart for the training that God wants to do in our life. Because here was the situation of the early readers of the letter to the Hebrews, as near as I can tell. They had had these powerful experiences of God's grace and presence, and their newfound faith was potent, enough to make them overflow in generosity and endure incredible suffering. You can read chapter 10 to read what they had gone through already. And yet as the struggle wore on and as they began to grow weary, they began to slow down and to shrink back and to look for an easier path. And so the writer of Hebrews writes to remind them of the beauty of Jesus and to call them to grow up, to go further in and further up into deeper discipleship. Let us move on to maturity, he says. Now that's the frame. Here's the devotional. Maybe there are some of you here who you need to experience tangibly the grace of God. And you need to move from trusting to a trusting that is characterized by tasting. And I hope you do. But I would be willing to wager that more of us in this room need to move from tasting to embrace God's desire for our training. Because we have a tendency to think that training only exists for the sake of tasting, for the sake of getting those good feelings again. But tasting is never an end in itself. It's always meant to serve our training as the Spirit transforms us to be more like Jesus. 
And I guess I share this because I think that there are probably some of you here who could point to experiences of God where God felt so real and so near and you felt so alive and now those experiences feel far away and you aren't as passionate as you once were and you're beginning to feel spiritually dry and spiritually dull and in the face of that struggle with boredom and apathy and weariness you are beginning to doubt and to shrink back and to slow down and to look for a path of less resistance and you may even think that God has abandoned you. But what if it's possible that God is actually calling you now to a deeper level of discipleship? That God is saying, you're ready. You're ready for more solid food. God's taking the bottle away because he has something better for you. Training you to be like Jesus as you follow him. And maybe it's like this. But in the early stage, what God had given you is an orange. And you know what to do with an orange. I'm not going to do it so that my hands don't get sticky, but you know how to peel the orange. And then you know how to squeeze the orange to get the juice out. And then you drink the juice. This is what you're used to, an orange. But now, during this season, God has given you an apple. And some of you are taking the apple and you're squeezing it. You're trying to get the juice out of it. And you're squeezing it and you're squeezing it and nothing is coming out. And if you're not careful, you would begin to believe that what God has given you is not an apple but a stone. But what father among you, if his son asks him for bread, he will give him a stone. And how much more must it be the case that God has not given you a stone? It's an apple. <laughs> you have to eat it a different way. And could it be that what you are experiencing is a burden that God actually intends as a blessing? An opportunity to grow a faith with deeper roots, to build your life on solider ground, that instead of trying to always go back, that you would actually go forward. See, God is calling us all to grow up in grace, and growth includes growing pains, includes groaning. Sometimes it means fighting for every inch, learning just how deeply and daily you need God, or how much you need your brothers and sisters who remind you of what's real, when you don't feel it. I don't say the Apostles' Creed because I feel the truth of the words. I say the Apostles' Creed because I need those words to hold my faith when I don't feel it. I don't sing the songs because I always feel the truth of the words. I sing the songs because I need those songs to hold me when I don't feel it. I don't go to church because I feel connected to all the people that I'm at church with. I go to church because I need those people to hold me when I can't hold on myself. Training means showing up not for what you can get, get but what you can give. And it can be pro a painful process. And you can only do it if you're held by the promise that God is with you and for you and that he has not given you a stone. Because what God is trying to do is to move our confidence from our perception of his presence to his promises. 
to move us from the shifting sand of our ever-changing experience to the solid ground of his action in Jesus Christ, which doesn't change based on how I feel. No matter how I feel, he still came and lived and died and rose again. And the way that you know that God loves you is not because you always feel it. It is because he came in person and went up on the cross and into the tomb and out again and up into the sky and sent the Holy Spirit. The way that you know God loves you is not because you feel it, but because in his word he has promised you. Remember that song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And scripture assures us that the ground of God's presence is never our perception. It's always God's promise. I'm with you always to the end of the age. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Let every human being be found a liar, and God will still be found true. These are his promises. And God wants to grow us from squeezing every experience for a spiritual high to setting our hope steadfastly on who he has promised to be for us in Jesus. And so we have to grow up. Solid food is for the mature. And 20 years ago, I sat where you sat. I was so hungry for God. I was ready to charge hell without a squirt gun. And for the last 20 years, I've been looking for what's real. And here's what I've learned. There are no shortcuts to a mature faith. You can't get it from a book by John Calvin or a sermon by John Piper. You can't get it from prayer at the house of prayer or praying for signs and wonders. You can't get it from 15 missions trips or advanced degrees in theology. You can't get it from listening to or preaching hundreds of sermons. I know because I've tried all these things. And while all of these things have built my faith, there's no silver bullet, no secret recipe, no shortcut to maturity. Spiritual maturity is the fruit of slow and steady training. Constant practice in distinguishing between good and evil and saying no to sin and yes to Jesus because I've seen enough of him that I trust him. And it can be a slow process, but it's so worth it because as it happens, the spirit trains your heart to be satisfied with something better than and more solid than my feelings. Now, I'm almost done. But if you're here and you are in a season of renewal, don't hear me saying that having feelings is immature. That's not what I'm saying. Just the opposite, in fact. Ride the waves. When faith is flowing freely and easily, ride the wave as long as it lasts. But at some point, when the wave dissipates, do not believe that God has abandoned you or that he has given you a stone or he once gave you bread. Do not become attached or addicted to a particular expression of God's presence. Because there's something better than endlessly chasing spiritual highs. But if you're here and you're in a season of dullness, 
then by all means look in the mirror of the word at what God is showing you. Maybe if some immaturity has been exposed, by all means look at that. But look beyond it too. Look beyond the mirror to the window of the word in which we see Jesus, in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. Lift up your heart. He wants to train you in righteousness. The groans of growing are good. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for the promise that stands sure regardless of what we feel. We thank you for the gift of experiential faith and for the way that it engages our whole person and calls from us an emotional and physical and intellectual and relational response. And we know that your heart for us is for something more, though, than being attached to our experience of you. And so, Lord, will you move our confidence from the perception of your presence to the much firmer ground of your promises? And will you impress on the hearts of my brothers and sisters and on my heart as well that you are a good father who never gives a stone to a child who asks for bread? Help us to toughen up, to grow some spiritual teeth, and to learn to eat solid food to embrace your desires to train us so that we can live and love like Jesus. And all for your love's sake. We pray. Amen. The song of response, we're going to sing this wonderful song and I'm going to invite you to do something strange, which is get out the hymnal underneath your seat. <laughs> Or if you're in the balcony, there's a song sheet for you. And it's number 291. And it is the song, May the Mind of Christ My Savior. And I'm just going to draw your attention to the words as you turn there. 291. May the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour, so that all may see I triumph only through his power. May we run the race before us, strong and brave to face the foe, looking only unto Jesus as we onward Go. Will you stand with me and listen?